Hi, I'm Awisto Yu, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 10 new Class of 2021 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Bergner, a Class of 2021 New Arizona Fellow. Daniel is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and the author of five books of literary nonfiction. His most recent book, Sing for Your Life, about race and art, tells the story of a young African-American man who was locked up in solitary cells in Virginia's juvenile institution of last resort and is now singing at the Metropolitan Opera. Daniel is currently working on a book, both intimate and scientific, about how we as a culture conceptualize and treat mental health issues. Daniel, congratulations on your acceptance this year. So to start off, can you just tell us a little bit more about your project and just frame it for us before I I dive into more specific questions? So let me say just a little bit about how I'm thinking. I want this book that's my project as a New America Fellow to deeply explore the way we as a culture think about and treat mental health issues. The book will be driven by personal narrative. So I spent lots of time at this point with people who've been diagnosed with a range of conditions from the more common, say depression or ADHD, to the more uh, extreme and severe, and that is schizophrenia, uh, other um, areas of psychosis. Um, Several of them would reject their diagnoses. Um, But in any case, the idea is to get deep and intimate into their way of experiencing, their way of seeing, and to be able to present that on the page. Interwoven with that, I very much want uh, to present the science that we're beginning to explore today. And scientists have been really candid with me that the past 40 years or so that have been defined by a biochemical view of mental illness that these decades have been decades really of frustration. There was so much loud promise back in the 80s and 90s about uh, what biochemistry, what uh, uh, the medicine of neuroscience would provide and that promise just hasn't been borne out. So scientists have been remarkably candid with me about that and then have welcomed me into their labs to have me watch them find a way forward. So before we get into the specifics of the narrative, I want to talk about just writing in general with you. This will hopefully be your sixth book whenever it's published. And no two books of yours are the same. Uh, So you've written about opera stage and the rodeo and Sierra Leone. And so I'm curious about the writing process for you. What, What, if anything, remains consistent in your methods when you go from book to book or what changes, if anything, at all? It's a great question and one I like to answer because I actually see things differently. Although the specific topics from a prison rodeo to desire can seem really disparate, I actually see two themes that just run straight through. One is writing about race and the other is writing about our psyches. And so this project clearly falls in the second category. It's a way uh, this project is, and much of my work is, is a way to see inside ourselves, underline the our part of that. 
what we have in common. So again, whether it's spending hour upon hour with a woman who hears voices or spending hour upon hour with someone, a scientist who's determined to give us a glimpse inside the brain, but not as a way to stop at the brain, really as a way to see inside the mind, the psyche, and even the soul. These are approaches to what we all have in common. And that's what's really dear to me. That's what drives me as a writer. So this upcoming book project, your brother is a featured character, if that's okay to say, I guess, in some ways. And so when you write books like this, both your previous books, Sing for Your Life, and this book, when you have a central character whose life actually embodies the themes that you're writing about, can you just tell me more about the complexities of writing about that from that kind of perspective of the individual, but I'm sure to this broader narrative, and how you kind of use their story to really tell a broader story? Yeah, I should make one distinction, which is that with Sing for Your Life, it really was all about one character. So the the broader issues there about race, about how we perceive race, are filtered through that one story of that one singer, Ryan Speeder Green. Here, this book, this current project begins, yes, very much with my brother, who I'll say something about in a sec, but then broadens out. So there are a range of people, characters, who raise a range of questions and who will help us, me as writer and readers, sort of get deeper into the material. So my brother's story, just in brief, is this. When we were much, much younger, so this was way back in the 80s, and when he was you know, in his late teens, early 20s, he was diagnosed, put on a lock board, heavily medicated, and ultimately rejected the diagnosis, got himself off medication because it had a real uh, cost in terms of his ability to be a musician, and uh, has led a very thriving life since with some bumps, certainly, say, in his late 20s and early 30s, but then, you know, for decades since, um, had a great life. And that's always raised questions for both of us. And so relatively recently, he began to ask me about writing about this topic. And certainly he is one part of an array of people, some of whom I should say, uh, get help from medication. I don't, I don't, I'm not writing a polemic, although I am certainly exploring and challenging orthodoxies. Now to your question, I've always gone about writing journalism in this way. So the books, the articles I write for the New York Times Magazine are tightly, tightly tied to what's on the tape, on my recorder. Um, They don't veer from that. But I am trying to get readers to relate on the deepest emotional and intellectual levels to the issues that I'm dealing with. And so I can't even think of a way, another way to do that. I don't want people to be 
relating in an abstract way. I want people to be caring intensely. And then the impact, the impact on the way we think as a culture, in this case, perhaps the impact on policy, which I hope to have, will be grounded in this deep experience. So in your application, you mentioned that your brother was diagnosed during a time of what you call the third revolution within psychiatry. Can you explain that term and where does that fall in in general within the history of mental health? Yeah. So loosely speaking, late 70s, early 80s, a time when there was this sense of a biomedical revolution in psychiatry, self-proclaimed third revolution coming after two previous uh, transitions over the previous centuries, each of which would have been seen as an advance in terms of humanism, in terms of treating people with mental health issues just more humanely. Here was what was declared to be a third and perhaps final advance in that direction. Here were a set of cures, a set of medications that were going to liberate patients and restore them to mainstream life uh, almost magically because of the power of medicine. So antipsychotics were going to take care of psychosis. The antidepressants that we're so familiar with today were going to take care of depression. And I vividly remember when my brother was committed to that locked ward, my very troubled and overwhelmed parents, my dad, a physician and public health official, my mom, a medical sociologist. So these were not unversed people. These were people, if anyone could have coped with this situation, it would have been them. But of course, it was their child. They were not coping. And I remember them handing me a book subtitled New Medicines for the Mind. And it was in bright, bright colors. So no one would sort of miss the emphasis and asking me to read it. In effect, asking me to sign on to this new vision whereby my brother's hospitalization and medication would be a kind of godsend. It made me somewhat uneasy at the time and made my brother, of course, extremely uneasy. And I think we're at a point now where even psychiatry itself, to some degree, is sharing that uneasiness. So one last note, this fall, well after I'd begun this project, the New England Journal of Medicine had an issue whose cover story was psychiatry's identity crisis and whose lead article raised these very questions, talking about psychiatry's increasing and misguided reliance on, quote, medication management and on overgeneralized and often unuseful diagnoses. And there's a sense in the profession, and the New England Journal article relates this, that 
those just outside the profession or those who are sort of reliant on either psychiatrists who aren't spending enough time or on their general practitioners aren't yet aware, but that those inside the profession really thinking about this are aware of the severe limits of the way we've gone about seeing and treating mental health since the 80s. So in addition to exploring this history in your book and your application, you said that you also hope to provide a different perspective from different countries and cultures and how they approach mental health. So can you talk um, a bit more about some of the countries that you hope to feature in the book, but also even answer why there's such disparity in some cases from even within the same country, but a let alone country to country, and how different communities address mental health? Right. So that is a multi-part question, and I hope I remember what's running through my mind in response to all its parts. Let me start here in the U.S. and sort of ripple outward. So first of all, important to me that the book deal with community and racial differences in thinking about mental health here in the States. And just to touch on one briefly, there are vast differences between the way, and I'm speaking in general, of course there are exceptions, between the way African-American communities and relatively affluent white communities see mental health. There is, this can't be overstated, a distrust of the prevailing mental health system among African-American communities. I want that noted for now, and it's definitely something I plan to Uh, explore in the book. I've been talking with organizations and with black psychiatrists about how to best address that difference. Then let's sort of emanate outward. Um, So yes to differences between countries and cultures. One easy way to do that is that even between two countries so similar as England and the United States, there is a vast difference in the way we think about treating psychosis and schizophrenia. England's been way more receptive to really trying to see from the inside out in terms of how is a person who's been diagnosed, again, many reject the term, with psychosis or schizophrenia seeing the world, and how can we imagine our way into that and what would that mean in terms of response and treatment. That's even with the US and the UK. I've spent time in Israel, which both in its Jewish Israeli communities and in its Arab Israeli communities or or Arab communities in the territories is very different from us in terms of willingness to innovate, uh, willingness to see differently. So I've spent time in Israel's what's called the Soteria movement, which is a movement away from medication and toward a kind of, for lack of a better word for now, normalization of how we in the mainstream see people who see differently and what that might mean for outcomes. Then 
There's controversial research dealing with countries like India that seems to suggest that outcomes may be quite different in cultures that are somewhat to very different in their embrace of medical models. It is controversial research. It's been uh, supported by the World Health Organization, which has very much touted it. It's been doubted by others, but it's definitely thought-provoking and worth dwelling on. So another term that you introduced me to in your application was this idea of recovery-oriented treatment to mental health issues. And so can you explain that term a bit more? And also, is it more of an ideal form of treatment? And if so, why is it not embraced more or is it not? Is there a better form outside of medication? But just talk about recovery-oriented treatments. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to give just a little preface there because it's going to take take us deeply into approaches that not just question but repudiate medication. I think it's important to just say there are people in my household who've been very much helped by medication and I need to recognize that both now and on the page so that this is not what's known as pill shaming, which is a phenomenon out there and and can do damage. That said, the recovery movement is one that questions the idea, which is pretty prevalent still in psychiatry, of permanence. So if you think about major depressive disorder and the idea that you will be on medication forever. It's best to sort of reconcile yourself to that and to embrace that. Or more dramatically, that idea of permanence applies to pretty much anyone diagnosed with schizophrenia or related disorders of psychosis or bipolar disorder. So that if you get that diagnosis, This is a lifetime, and though the side effects of medication can be devastating, um, you know, really, really devastating, um, permanent and flagrant tics and uncontrolled movements, Parkinsonian symptoms, you know, dullness and sleepiness of thought, et cetera, that you should be reconciled to that simply as a way to control other symptoms. Increasingly, whether you're talking about fairly moderate voices or voices that would really re-envision the way we think about psychology, there's a questioning of that model. And I think for very, very good reason. Um, On the moderate end, there's the idea that you might be able to use medication short or medium term, but then taper that down all kinds of complexities there, of course. And then at the more sort of demanding end in the sense that it places demands on our kind of taken for granted perspectives, there's a strong argument to be made, I think, to question medication in many cases where it has been the go-to approach. And I should say, I'll just add, because I know that makes me sound like more of a radical than I am by temperament, 
that I'm about next week to visit the lab of a very prominent scientist who is at a very prominent university who would say the same, who would say, we are overdiagnosing and overmedicating. I think he would throw out the figure by 40 to 50%. I just want to revisit this idea about making sure that you're not pill shaming. I think you were very intentional about stating that in your application and, and also now here today. But why is it important also to ensure that this book does not pill shame? Well, simply speaking, because there are people, clearly many people, who've gained benefit from medication. I don't think anyone really argues against that. Even the most radical voices do not argue against that. And it can inflict pain and tremendous self-doubt among people who are already often beset by self-doubt to say, hey, you really shouldn't be on medication, to create almost a quasi moral argument around that. I do not want and will not create that kind of quasi-moral polemic. That's not what I'm after on the page. I'm after greater, deeper understanding. And so when you think about the audience for your book, who are you hoping to reach? Is it those who are already you know, dealing with psychiatric issues or or a different audience beyond that. But can you just help me understand too, who's the audience for this book? Yeah, everyone. <laughs> so of course, people who are dealing with psychiatric issues. Yes, that is one audience for this book. But then I think, who isn't dealing with psychiatric issues? I mean, I was on the phone for an hour this morning with someone who is on the West Coast and likes to talk at dawn. And so it's sort of the first call of my day. And he's in a terrible way right now. But do I ever feel like there's a tremendous distance between my psyche and his? I do not. Do I ever feel like there's a great distance between my psyche and the psyche of the woman I spend so much time with who hears voices, whose story to me is just tremendously compelling. Um, I don't feel that distance. I don't know if this is the place to get a little bit mawkish, but the last conversation she and I had, I paused for a moment. I teared up. It wasn't out of pity. It was out of just a deep relationship and a seeing that her story, I believe, will be so representative. I, I, I'm just not about a corner of, you know, the population. I'm about having a readership that if I do my job well, no matter what those readers are coming with in terms of background, they're going to see themselves in the people and it, that I'm writing about and in the questions I'm raising. If the book doesn't do that, I've completely failed. Yeah. And just on a more personal side, I mean, as you write this book, it, it's, it is very personal in many ways to you and your family. Um, what's that process been like for you as you do the reporting and the research for it? And as, especially as you get to know your brother probably more intimately now as a result of this process, just what's this process been like for you? I'm pausing because 
I want to let myself go into that emotional space before answering. I think it's done just what you've alluded to, which is deepened my understanding of my brother, allowed us to see our family from a very different perspective. My brother and I occupied the same house and remember mostly the same details, but not only experienced them, but interpreted them quite differently. So it's a real lesson in subjectivity. I appreciate that. Yeah, I can imagine it's um, a very different experience this time around writing this book for you. You know, as you know, the world is in a really different place today than it was when you submitted your application back in February. And as I try to take some time and speak to each of the new fellows in your class, I'm curious about what gives you hope right now. Um, And I've asked this of everyone, but what does give you hope right now as you look to the rest of this year and also to, you know, the future in general? It's a really hard question for me because I think often and write often about race about the issues that are so much on everyone's mind right now. And often, not always, for all kinds of reasons, I don't feel all that much hope there. I hope I'm wrong. That's my biggest hope. But when I think about the questions I'm exploring in this current project, and when I have the conversations that I'm having to immerse myself in this current topic. I do feel more hopeful. I don't know how to explain that. I just feel a kind of opening up in me, in the people who I'm talking to, in the possibility of connection. And I guess it's that connection on a profound level that ultimately I want as a writer, and I feel that possibility with this current subject. And then my final question, which is always the one that most writers hate to answer, but where do you hope to be a year from now with your project? Easy answer. A year from now, book close to written, very close to written. Going back and forth with my editor, going back and forth to fill in spots with people, whether Uh, They're the sort of main characters or whether they're the scientists, but I can feel it. I can, I I don't think that's unrealistic. I'll, I'll have a book by then. Well, we look forward to supporting you this year. And thank you again for your time today, Daniel. Thank you for listening to this interview. If you enjoy this conversation, please visit newamerica.org slash fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2021.